Hey fellow tennis nerds, today I have a distinguished guest in Simon Konov, uh, top tennis training, I'm sure you watch their videos, uh, as have I, they have some crazy stats, like 350,000 YouTube uh, subscribers, more than 200 million views, and uh, you know, 100,000 online students, so they offer online coaching, they have lots of YouTube videos, and they do also in-person classes and coaching and stuff, so there's a bunch of uh, ways to get in touch with them, they work with pro players, they work with with uh, amateur players. And I'm uh, really happy to talk to you, Simon. We met before, so it's nice to see you again. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start a bit uh, by talking about your YouTube journey. Like, how long have you been doing this and what's changed during the, the year or so of doing this stuff? I, I started in 2011. So many, many years ago, 12 years now. Um, the journey has been insane. Like over the years, I've seen so many people start creating content, then they leave. Then new people come, they replace them. Um, it's been a long, long journey, like building up to this level. Uh, but the main thing is still content is king, right? If you produce good content, people are going to watch your videos. If you produce poor content, no one's going to watch you. So it's, it's still the same. And I've always felt like it's all about the level of coaching that you're giving. Um, if people are going to watch your videos. So I've always tried to maintain it, just do my best video after video. Every video is like a, a movie. You know, when I start to actually edit it, when I start to think about the whole process of what I'm going to speak about, the filming, it's like a movie for me. So every time I produce one, it's like I'm releasing a new movie in a way. <laughs> That's cool, actually. I, li yeah. I like that attitude, right? It makes, it makes sense. I mean, you put so more, much effort into it, so why not see it as like a bigger project? Uh, so you do all your editing yourself. So right now we are in the process of hiring a few editors because up till now it's just been me and Alex um, and it takes so long to do one video. So for example, one YouTube video could take 15 hours from the time you get on the court, you film it, you edit it because I go over it three or four times. So I'm editing the first, the raw edit. Then I go into the slow motion examples or real time examples. Then I go over some of the audio. So it becomes like a, a 15 hour job per video and it's just too much so right now we're in the process of hiring two two editors um testing them out but it's very hard to find someone who does it to what you want to be done you know like your standard and also the vision that you have so i might i i can see a video being produced in this way and i give it to the editor and they do it completely different and i feel like they've ruined the video so i have to do it myself <laughs> so it comes back like almost with an editor, you go back and forth two or three times over. So it's like, why actually do this with an editor when I could have just done it myself? So it's, it's hard to find someone who does a good job on the kind of content that we produce. Yeah, I, I think I, many people know the feeling. Like you, you have, it's your baby, you were there on the court, so you know kind of what you want to talk about in this um, scenario. And then obviously an editor is gonna come in with a different mindset, different skill level, different approach. And it's tough to give control away, right? I talked to this. Exactly. Uh, I've talked about this with Ian Westerman from from Essential Tennis the other day. You know, okay. and he, he said the same thing. But like his point was also like you need editors to grow. You know, you, 100%. so that, that's the the balance, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Like if you want to, if we look at someone, yeah, yeah, some of the new guys online, they've got three or four guys working for them editing. So if it's just two guys editing, we're filming, we're being the coaches, we're wearing all the different hats. Plus you have your own life, like you can't spend 80 hours a week just editing, right? So you need the editors to actually grow and, and compete with the other guys who are coming up right now. Because there's a few guys who are making world-class content, uh, the editing is incredible. So to compete with them, you need a professional editor. Yeah, I think you're, you're right on it. And it's something I think we all think about, like I, I also do a lot of editing. I love the process of editing, I'm not very good at it. Uh, as with other things, but you know, it's something you try to improve, but at some point you probably have to relinquish some control about it, you know, and uh, that's just how, how it is. And now the competition on YouTube is, is more than ever before. Is that something you notice with coaching, like that it's more and more online coaches now uh, on uh, YouTube and, and other platforms? If, if you go on Instagram, there's about 10,000 people making content on Instagram right now. So if you, if you go <laughs> yeah. on YouTube, it's still much smaller than, for example, Instagram. But once you start to grow Instagram and focus on that kind of content, I get lost watching all these different people. I've never seen them before. Like 
there's 50 different people that pop up on my feed. But in, uh, with YouTube, it's kind of like the main guys are still established. And then you have all these younger guys who are doing a very good job and they're trying to catch up and they're, they're producing content in a different format. I think the older guys, the guys who have been doing it for a long time, their content is more like uh, almost like a documentary. You can watch it and they go over one stroke and you feel like you're watching something on TV. Whereas with the younger generation, you watch their content and it feels like you're watching something on Instagram or Facebook. All the different edits, all the different scene changes. So there's a lot of um, editing going on with the newer generation. And I think they kind of tailor towards that younger generation. So it's like a case of, okay, we need an editor also just to, to make content for that generation as well. <laughs> it's like um, uh, with the Mr. Beastification, you know, it's like everybody yeah, exactly. watches, like how can you maximize, uh, for example, like people engagement and for, you know, they watch longer, they click more easily on the thumbnail and so on. And um, but what's what would you say is your main audience? Is it is it maybe a little bit older? It's something I noticed. Like I, I think my my audience is older, for example. I think right now it's twenty five to forty four that range group. Um, maybe on different platforms is different. For example, Instagram we might have a younger audience because more young people use Instagram. Facebook it might be a slightly older audience. So within within each platform is it's a different age. We also no, notice the difference with the sexes. For example. On YouTube, it's more male, it's like 90-10. But then on Instagram, it's like 80-20. And on Facebook, it's like 60-40. So within each platform, it's like there's a massive difference. Um, on In terms of YouTube, I think 25 to 44 is our kind of age group that we have the uh, the biggest audience within. Obviously, the different channels make, make a difference. But if we go back to the start, like you and Alex, how did you um, get to meet and, and decide to start this thing together? So, so I met Alex playing futures. So I saw Alex, he was, he was already about 700 in the world, 600 in the world. Uh, we met in Portugal. I was playing a futures out there, one of my last events before I stopped, uh, 2007. So we met there and then 2007, I stopped. I stopped competing myself and I started coaching full time. So I was working already as a coach for like four years uh, until 2011. And in 2011, I started um, working mainly with performance players, like high-level performance players, national players. And I was doing a lot of good work with a lot of these players. They were playing like Tarbs or Ray, all the big events. And I was exhausted. I was doing 60 or 70 hours a week on court. And eventually, one winter, I got really ill and I ended up in hospital. And uh, I couldn't work for a month. And during that time, I came across Fuzzy Yellow Balls online. It's one of the, orig the original tennis YouTube channel, right? So it was Fuzzy Yellow yeah. and it was Essential. Those two were the, the pioneers. They kind of paved the way for everyone else. So they started, I think, 2009. And I was watching their content while I was in bed. I couldn't get out of bed for about a month. Uh, and during that time, I had a kind of I, I, an idea. Why don't I start something online, like a website? Because the issue I had was your time is limited. You can only work with one hour with one player, right? But I felt like I had all this information and all this knowledge to, to help people. So I actually started it more for my own players. So I kind of set up a website because I was dealing with the same issue over and over again, like the ball toss and serve, players not using their body, players not using the legs, lazy footwork, all the things that we, we see on a daily basis. I was dealing with this every single day. Um, so I kind of set it up for them. And I said, look, I'm doing one hour a week with you. Instead of just learning one hour a week, you can go on my website, you can watch all the free videos, you can read all the articles, uh, and it will help you improve your tennis quicker. And then from there, I went to Monte Carlo and I filmed a few players in slow motion. And I realized that people were actually clicking on it. I was getting like 10,000 views, 20,000 views. And I was like, wow, this is impressive. So I did it myself for three years, from 2011 to 2014. And then in 2014, Alex joined my club. So he, he had knee surgery, he, he was like 200 in the world. He had knee surgery and he realized he wasn't gonna get back on tour. He was like, look, he's already had, that was his second time having knee surgery. So he joined my club and he saw me filming one day. 
And he looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing, dude? <laughs> so I said, I'm making a YouTube video. And he was like, do you have a website? And I explained to him and we started speaking. Uh, and a long story short, he said to me, I said to him, why don't you do a few videos together and we can do some hitting, we can do some drills, get involved with it. Uh, and from there, we've kind of been a team. So 2011, the website started. It was slow at the beginning because the first few years is kind of like a, a very slow growth. Then 2013, it started to take off. And in 2014, Alex came on board and it just started exploding. And Alex had the, all the connections to the players like Nalbanian, David Ferrer, Robredo, all these players that we filmed with eventually, Alex knew them through his coach. So that's how we got those kind of partnerships going. Uh, and then it just exploded. And then 2017 is when we saw the huge spike like three years until 2020, we grew insane amount. And we were like, we went from being like the second or third biggest in the world to then the biggest. We overtook Essential, we overtook field tennis, um, and now we're at 371. So it's been a long journey, but worth it. <laughs> yeah, of course. And and you, you're two very good players as well. I think a lot of people can enjoy just watching you hit. I think I noticed that with, with like, Recreational players like to see strong players hit and just hopefully yep. learn something from that. Uh, but how many hours are you on court today? Are you still like teaching people? So I in teach a little bit. As you did I, have a, I have a few students who are mainly from when the war broke out in Ukraine. Um, Turkey had a huge influx of Ukrainians and Russians. So right now in my region, every second or third car is a oh, yeah. Russian or Ukrainian car. So I have a few players who play from Ukraine, a few players from Russia, but in terms of the actual players here, there aren't many performance players here. So it's kind of like more recreational. They come for a week, they come for a month. I coach them for a bit. Um, I do most of my online students, like that's how I teach. So I have a group of players who are kind of based around the world and we work with them online. They're, those are like our VIP students. Uh, and apart from that, we do our, cl uh, our clinics and our camps in person. So that's kind of how many hours I'm, I'm on court right now. So not that many. I'd like a lot more. I'd like a, a few good, like high level junior players, but it's very hard to find right now in this region. Would you like to be traveling as a kind of a coach on the pro tour, whether it's on WTA or ATP? Would that be like a, a, a future plan of yours or would that be too much travel I think and stuff for I, you? I have a family, so I have a wife and I have two kids. I think it's too much for me to be away for too long. I mean, if someone offered me like 20 weeks a year, I'd probably say, let's do it. Uh, Alex just started with one of the British guys and he's been traveling quite a bit. Um, I hate traveling. I really, really hate traveling, especially now with all the rules and it's so complicated, right? So I hate traveling, but if it was a player who was really serious and I could see that they were committed and they were working hard, and taking on on board the advice, I'd probably commit to it, like 20 weeks, 25 weeks a year. But full time, like 40, 50 weeks, no. It's a grind, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah, I think people don't realize how tough it can be on, on players um, that travel all the time, go to a different venue, different tournament, different hotel, eat different food, they play on different courts and different conditions and then you lose first match and then you have to do it all over again in some other place. Like, um, unless you're in like, it's... you know, some places do futures repeatedly, but it, it, it's not an easy lifestyle and it's quite expensive as well, right? Extremely expensive and it's brutal. I think it's not just the physical toll that it takes on you, like sleeping in a different bed every, every week, eating the different food, like you said, traveling. It's also emotional and mental, like the stress of just getting on a plane, doing two or three changes, getting to a new place, adapting to the time, um, finding out the routes to the different places, finding out the routes to the restaurants, to the shops, back to the hotel, back to the tournament site. It's, it's brutal. So people think like professional tennis is such a high class sport, but actually at the lower levels, it's worse than being, I think, working in an office. You know, you, you make much, much less. And the, the, the toll that it takes on you physically and mentally is insane. And unless you've done it, it's like you can't really explain to somebody how it feels. Like for me, when I was playing, I didn't have much money, so I'd often sleep in hostels. So hostels were kind of like my bread and butter, right? I'd go to a place in Spain, 
I'd find the cheapest room and it'd be in a dormitory with 20 other people. And these people are going out, they're drinking, they're, they're having fun, right? And I'm getting ready for a match the next day at Futures. Sometimes there wasn't a hotel for me to stay in. It was like the, the, the players one is like 100 euros a night and I only have 200 euros for the week. So I'm like, okay, where do I sleep tonight? So I sleep in the bus station or the train station and I play a match next day. So it's, it's, a, it's a real grind, you know? People don't realize that to make it as a pro player, I think the first thing you have to think about is, are you coming with either a sponsor or are you coming from someone who has some money in the background, you know? Do you have wealthy parents? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I think that's a thing that people don't realize. Like, it's, it's such a pro if you have, and I know some players that have like wealthy parents and mm. that can help them go and, and really compete without that extra pressure of like, where do I eat tonight? What do I eat? Do I have to stay in this pretty shitty place, you know? Exactly. And it, like the, the conditions can be quite bad, like if you are on a severe budget, you know? So like I talked to a lot of players who are either on the tour or just stopped playing on the tour. Yeah. And a lot of them seem to have like some PTSD, you know, from like, oh <laughs> yeah. my God, it was bad, you know? <laughs> it was rough. It's like then how are you going to perform at your best? Precisely. I mean, I think unless you've got a, a sponsor or you've got the federation behind you or your parents are extremely wealthy, you're suffering on the tour for the first two or three years. You're going to suffer. You're going to, you're going to be sleeping in the worst hotels. You're going to be eating pretty bad food. Like you're not going to be going to a nice restaurant and paying 50 euros for a meal before a match. You're going to go and buy some cheap stuff from the local deli or whatever. Um, and you don't make anything until you hit like 250 in the world. You're, you're losing money. So you can be 300 in the world. One of the best players in the world. And actually, you're losing money every single week. You might win the event and you've still lost another $1,000 because you've paid for the hotel, you've paid for the flights, you've paid for your stringing, you've paid for your coaching, you're down 1000 but you've won the event. <laughs> it's insane, you know? Tennis needs huge changes. Like, yeah, it's, it's... It's, it, it needs massive changes. Do you have any ideas what they could change, do you think? Well, I think the simplest thing is if you've got... I think it was 17.5% of the revenue that tennis generates goes to players. If you compare that to a sport like the NBA, 50% goes to players. And then in the Premier League, the footballers are getting 60%. So if you take that 17.5% that and you take it up to 25 or 30%, right there you've got a huge amount of money to play with. And you can start pouring it into the challenges, you can start pouring it into the futures. Like the futures prize money has been the same, I think until two or three years ago, the same for 30 years. So what about inflation? Like every year, everything gets more expensive, right? But if you've got in, in the year, I think it was the early 90s to the mid 90s, you were getting the same prize money up until 2017, 2018. <laughs> it's, it's a joke. It's a... Uh, so if you, if you take that 17.5% and you put it up to 25 or 30%, now you have so much money to play with. And all these players who are between, let's say, 150 and 500, they can start making a proper living. If you know that if you get to 500, you start making yeah. a pretty good no, living, it's... it motivates you. You know, it will keep you going. Yeah, I, I think the problem is like you, you don't see where that line is because it's, it's so brutal all the way until there. And uh, since the prize money is so bad, like I think people don't realize, because the, a tennis player covers all their own costs, you know? So it, it, the problem is, is like the prize money you get, that just gets eaten by a lot of the expenses, you know? So um, I think that is an issue that you don't see. Like if you play football, you get a salary and you go on a player bus and it's all paid by the team or the club. And exactly. in tennis, you're all alone, right? It's, it's you, you're the CEO of your own venture and you need to perform. So it, it's, a, it's a tough, tough grind. And I, I do like talking to people about it because I think it's, it's a bit ridiculous that you have, I mean, the top guys are making great money, which is great because it's, a, it's a, one of the top sports in the world. But then the discrepancy of what an ATP top 10 guy makes and ATP top 150 make is, is worse than I think in many sports. It seems worse yes. at least. Yeah. If you take a player like Djokovic, if he was to win 2.5 million at Wimbledon, or if he was to win 2 million, for him it wouldn't make a big difference, right? But if it's, if it's the guy who's playing the first round of qualies or 
the first round of the main draw. If he's making instead of $50,000, he's making 100000 or 200000 for that first win. That makes a huge change for him. He can find himself for the next year or the next two years with that one win. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm all about the, like the PTPA. I hope that they start doing something, you know, like there's a lot of talk and the, the, there's a lot of good social media posts that they're putting out with a lot of good information. But I hope it actually transpires into something positive for the sport. Yeah, I think the sport needs some kind of reform and it's good that you push it. But then obviously you need like politics is tough because the politics is a lot of hot words, you know, and then you see nothing. So you, you definitely need exactly. some results coming from it and uh, to kind of like equalize some of that. And you see how much it means for a for a lower rank player to reach like to qualify for a tournament, qualify for Wimbledon, for example. Like that's a huge deal. Like financially, it's it makes like the whole year completely different. Exactly. Than if you just grind route like and you win a future here and there, you know. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a nuts. People that, and I think the awareness is important of that. You know, it's important. Uh, so when you played pro, like, what was the reason you um, you stopped? Like, did you get injured, or did you just feel like it wasn't worth it? I mean, obviously yeah, so you don't I... like traveling, so that's a big no, big no no as a at, tennis player. At that time, at that time, I liked traveling. It was kind of it's the last few years where I stopped enjoying the travel until I was like 32, 33. I liked traveling, but as a player, it was kind of so I'll give you an example. The last two months of my tennis, I managed to coach. I was coaching a bit in 2006. I saved up some money, uh, 5,000 euros. It's nothing, right? But I saved up 5,000 euros. I said, okay, I'm going to go and play some events in Europe. So I go to a few events in Spain, a few events in Portugal, and I come back to the UK. Uh, and there was a block of two or three uh, futures on the clay in the UK. And I'm thinking, okay, I need some matches before I actually play these events. So I play a British tour, like a money, money event. Um, and I had 250 pounds for the whole week. That was for my hotel, that was for the traveling, that was for the stringing. And I end up playing pre-qualifying. So I had to play pre-qualies, then I play qualies, and then I get into the main draw. So I win six matches in three days. And in, in, the, in the main draw, I play a guy from uh, Latvia, a Davis Cup player. He had just played the week before with um, Gilbus doubles. And he was like 240 in the world. Yeah. Uh, and we start the match and I'm on fire. Like I'm playing really good tennis and I take the first set like 6-2 or 6-3. And then it starts raining. And I go to the hotel and I count my money and I pay for the room and I've got five pounds left. All the money's gone because I've been there already like four or five days. And I've paid for the room and I'm like, okay, I'll play tomorrow. But if I win, what happens? Where do I go? So I was thinking, okay, I'll have to sleep in the, in the bus, uh, bus station. So I play the next day. And by this time, fatigue has set in, right? I'm, I've got pains everywhere. He wins the, sec the second set, 6-4. And at the first, uh, the change of ends, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, let's play a few more games and see how it is. But I couldn't hear forehand. My wrist was like aching. So I retired. Uh, and I got on the bus and that's when I decided like, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to make it. There's no chance of me getting a sponsor now. I, I was already like 20 years old. Uh, the Federation wouldn't help me. So I was on my own. And the same day I get a phone call from my dad and he says, um, basically his job has let him go. He's been fired. So I get back to the house and me and my dad are speaking. I'm like, look, dude, this is never going to work. I need a hundred thousand per year to travel full time and make it. Like if I really want to make it, I need a hundred thousand a year. So at that point I decided, okay, let's start coaching. There was a few players who really wanted me to help them. Some juniors, some futures players. So I started being like the hitting partner for these players. And over the course of a summer, I just completely left tennis. And then I got my job in one of the big clubs in London and after that, I, I still thought, you know what, I'm going to save some money and play again. And I played again in 2010. I played a bunch of futures, traveled, uh, qualified for a bunch of futures, played for my first point, never got my first point. But during that time, the club said to me, they called me in the office and they said, Simon, we need a full-time coach. And you've been away so many weeks this year, we can't rely on you. 
So now you have to decide, do you want to be a coach here? And I needed to be a coach there. That was my job, right? That's how I was paying my bills. Or do you want to travel and play futures? So that was the last time I competed, like properly, 2010. Uh, and after that, that was it. It was kind of like 2011, I started top tennis. Uh, and until last year, I hadn't played a match for about 10 years till I started playing the ITF Senior Store. <laughs> so that was it. Yeah. Fantastic story. I like when you share also the, the tough stuff, like, I mean, sleeping on like a, in a bus station. It's like an insane, for many people hearing that, I think it's like an insane thing, right? It's like, and, what and is this? It's like a homeless life. <laughs> It's but a homeless you're life. Tennis for money. Right? You're, you're playing. You're playing futures, and you're sleeping in a bus shelter. And the the most insane thing was, I remember being in the town near Barcelona, and I was sleeping in the bus shelter in the bus station. And my hand, I had to cover my rackets. I had to cover my bag because I was worried someone's going to steal my bag. So in the nighttime, I'm sleeping. I'm holding my bag like I'm hugging it, in case someone comes and steals my rackets. And that was kind of I was. The mindset back then was insane. Like my mindset was survival. I was just surviving. Like I lived in a pretty bad area in London as well. So for me, it was kind of like normal to be in bad situations all the time, especially in my area. I was one of the only white guys for my age. So it was like Somalians, Sudanese, uh, some of the most dangerous people in London lived in my area. So for me, I was kind of used to that situation, but you have to play a match the next day. It's a different kind of vibe, you know? <laughs> so it was, it was horrendous. Looking back, like there's no chance I could play my best tennis. And so how did it feel when you got back, even if you, okay, this is the, you know, non prize money tournaments, but, yeah. but just getting that like competitive juices out for the, for the seniors or, or masters tour. I loved it, honestly. So I started last April, April, 2022, uh, played my first match in 11 years. And then I played four weeks in a row. And the second week I played, so the first week I played a, a player from Iran in the final, a Davis Cup player, I ended up injuring my hamstring in the tie break, the first set tie break, and I pulled out. Then the next week I played a number one in the world. He's a German guy. And he was number one for 35s and 40s. And I ended up almost beating him. Like I had chances, there were some points where I could have won that match, but I lost like seven, six, six, five, uh, seven, seven, six, seven, five. And then the next week I played the final again, uh, lost to a German player, another German player. And then the, the fourth week I won my first event. And then after that, I won like two more events. Um, and then I played a match in October last year and I lunged for a wide ball at the net, lunging for a wide backhand volley. And my knee hit my rib and cracked my rib, broke my rib. And I haven't played since then. Oof. Yeah, it was so painful, man. I couldn't play oh. for four months. Yeah, so I didn't play from October till like mid-January. I started hitting balls again. Um, and then from there, I was preparing for the, the Masters, like the World Championships in March. And then the week before the event, I have the phone call from the estate agent saying, your house is ready. Like, it's time to move. So I had to move. I didn't have the chance to actually play. So the next event's probably going to be like September, October, um, and we'll see how we do. Like, I love competing. Competing is my, the adrenaline you get, the feeling like you're in a fight, you know, you want to win, he wants to win, and it's a battle of the wheels, right? So I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, and it's a nice way to be able to get that feeling back without putting too much pressure on you that you have to make a living doing it. And, exactly. And it's, it's a little bit less, um, aggressive maybe than future store future store can be quite aggressive you know I, i've had some weird like i played uh, maybe eight events as something like that as well on the itf or, or maybe six but uh, and i've had some really weird like line arguments with strong players like you know high rank yes. players that, that after one game they lose they lose their shit you know it's like one game <laughs> you know and it goes goes into that it's a funny song, tour right? isn't so, it you, so you, you can meet be some very real funny characters <laughs> yeah i can relate 100 percent. i was a bit it's... shocked because i thought maybe like the first matches I played felt pretty like, okay, you know, it's a social thing. We're just having fun. Uh, who yes. wins, wins, right? You know, and, and I was doing pretty well. And then I played one tournament, which was very strong. Like the, all the players were like, you know, ex high level competitive players. Yes. And they were like sharks, you know, they were like, <laughs> they didn't want to win at every cost possible. You know? Whatever it takes. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure the players you played 
uh, were the same since they were such a high level players, you know, so strong players. Uh, so how is uh, like tennis life in Turkey? So you played all these events in Turkey, I guess, or? So I played last year, I played in Turkey like four or five events, and then I played a few in the UK. I was in the UK for the summer. I played a few events on grass. Um, I won two of them. So those events were actually, the, the culture is so different, you know, all around Europe. You go to Spain, it's different. You go to France, it's different. You go to the UK, it's different. In the UK, the players were more relaxed. It's more like a social event. But I also played one event in Italy, and Italy was so, it was the worst place I've played. Cutthroat. Like, so I'll give you a bit of a backstory. The tournament was supposed to start on Thursday. So I booked my flight for Wednesday. And I thought, okay, Wednesday, I arrive, I do maybe a, a quick hit in the evening, and I play on Thursday. I get a phone call when I'm in the airport, like um, transferring. And it's the umpire, it's the, the referee. And he says to me, your match has been scheduled for tonight, 6 p.m. And I said, dude, I'm in Istanbul right now. I have to firstly arrive, then I have to take a taxi. I have to take a train. I'm not going to make it. And he said, okay, if you can't make the match, you get a, the other guy gets a walkover and he gets the points. So I arrive at, at 5.45 and my match is at 6 p.m. So I don't even have time to warm up. Like I basically get my bags. I haven't even checked into the hotel. I get on court and I play. And the first few games, I'm like, just warm up. Like the main thing is not to get injured. And in the fifth game, I hit a serve and I injured my back. So I've spent all that money getting well, to Italy. Yeah. And the referee has set me up because he wants his, his guy to win. So you get that kind of thing as well. Even on the ITF Senior Store, on the Master Store, you get that kind of, like the referee knows that guy and he knows you're traveling that day. So he's like, why not put him to play the match? He's been traveling all day. He'll, yeah. be, he'll be exhausted already. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I had some some incidents like where I played uh, one of one of the national coaches in uh, Spain, um, and he seemed quite nice from the beginning. But then he had like his whole crew was there watching, and he had like some people from the federation, and like uh, they applaud every shot, like every shit shot I made. It was like playing like French Open, you know, and yeah. and he was doing a lot of weird stuff. Like you know when you you your your scream is going until I hit the ball and maybe <laughs> after. So he hits the ball and goes, uh... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> complete distraction. And I was it's... like, oh my God, this is, is this serious? Yeah, and I told the ref before, I was like, you know, I, I'm, I just, I had, because he also called me like, oh, you have to come. I'm like, I'm, I'm at work. Like, I, I can't just, yeah. like, I'm doing something. He's like, oh, we moved the matter. It's fine. You can come because it had rained before. All right, okay. so I'll come. And then in the rules, it said like, oh, third set is um, match tiebreak. And I'm like, Phew, at least, you know, so we once at yes. all, I'm like, okay, match tiebreak, I'm tired, I haven't eaten, I want to go home, you know? Yeah. And, and then they're like, no, 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 it's a long set. <laughs> oh. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, it's funny that you think it's going to be more social, and I like the competitive aspect, but I like the balance of social and competitive, not too, too competitive, because then it's silly, because there's no prize money, like we're not competing for, it's not the for like anyone's final. life or, or just 5,000 euro. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, but but you felt like overall that you you enjoy these events. Like this is uh, you you have fun playing them. You know what? I enjoy the matches. Like I enjoy competing. I like I love playing those competitive matches. But the waiting around, the organization. Uh, sometimes you wait six hours for the match. Like I don't have six hours just to spend for one match. Oh. I could be doing a lot of other things, right? You're waiting around. So all of that kind of puts me off. Um, but if I know the match is at 10 a.m. and I'm finished by 12, okay, great. I can set up the rest of the day, can have whatever else I'm doing. I know that it's kind of easy to follow. But if they tell me your third match on court number 15 and the first match is 10 a.m. and I show up at two, two o'clock and the match, the second match is still like in the first set. You're like, damn, I've wasted another day. So that aspect kind of puts you off, but if it's well organized, if the, the referee is kind of professional, if everything is kind of fair for all the players, it's great. Yeah, I think maybe it's sometimes like the world championships, I've heard from my friend Henrik who also played these events. He says it's, it's better organized. I've had some really like bad experiences with people withdrawing in the last, like, you know, you have a group of five players and, and then two guys withdraw and you're like, okay, I'm playing final first match. You know, it, exactly. it feels like, why did I 
come to this tournament. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like points. Exactly. Did you have any of that situations where people would withdraw? Yes, uh, there was a few events where I actually was on the court waiting for the match, um, and the, the opponent never showed up. And it's like an hour passes, and then they give you a walkover. And I've driven like three hours one way, and the guy's like, okay, you, your match is now tomorrow. So I have to drive back home three hours and come back the next day for the match. So that's happened to me at least four or five times. I think it's something that they need to actually clamp down on. You know, like if you don't show up to the match, if you're entered in the tournament on the, on the Sunday before the event and you don't withdraw, you get a penalty. Like you pay the fee, but you also pay a penalty. And if it's the match day and you don't show up, you pay a bigger penalty. So you pay $1,000 or you pay $500 for wasting not just the opponent's time, but the referee's time. And you've ruined the whole draw. Like it, like you say, it goes straight from first round, like a round robin to a final. I think penalize the players who don't show up. Yeah, I agree. I think they need to be really much stern now. Now they're just like, okay, you know, if it happens again, we might have to take action. You yeah. Know, like, come on, like you, you sign up, you're an adult. But in this senior exactly. story, like this, these are adults. These are not kids, right? Come on, exactly. like, not that hard. When it comes to like uh, pro level tennis in, in general, do you watch a lot of tennis? Like, do you keep up to, yeah, to date or do you, you don't have time because you're working a lot? I watch a lot of highlights. So I watch um, any big match that I see, like Alcaraz playing or Djokovic or Nadal. Any of the big guys, when I see them playing, I always watch the highlights. Like, I like to keep up to date with what's going on in tennis. And I also watch a lot of the... So I, I almost look into the players who are coming up the challenger level, uh, especially the younger guys. So if someone's 18 or 19 and winning challengers, I want to see what they're doing. Like, are they bringing a, a new type of tennis? Is it something that's different? How do they play? What's their technique like? For me, tennis is all about, like... One of the, the main reason I love tennis is the different uh, different styles of the game and also the different techniques that we see. Has there been a, like a trend shift like in recent years, like with guys like Alcaraz and Sinner who hits the ball harder than, than ever before? Or do you still think, feel like you can play pretty much whatever tennis as long as you have the tactics and the, the mental part of it? I think now tennis is so physical uh, and you have to be an athlete from the moment you break onto the tour. Whereas maybe in the past you can kind of be a very good tennis player and then become an athlete as you're a professional. Whereas nowadays, I think all the junior players that are working so hard on the, the physical side of the game, when they go on to the Futures Tour, when they go into the challenger, uh, challenger circuit, they're already pretty good athletes. Like they're already, they're, they're fast, they're fit, they're strong. Everyone's spending a lot more time in the gym and that translates to everyone hitting the ball harder and being quicker on the court and covering the court faster. So the points last longer. Plus the, the shift with the equipment. So, for example, slowing down the balls at Wimbledon, making it more rally friendly. Like for other 90s, the fans complained that tennis was just serve and volley or just one serve, like Sampras or Ivanisevic. So they slowed down the grass. They made the balls fluffier. They made them heavier. So every kind of, everything kind of translates into the game being a little bit slower. So it's harder to hit winners now. So players can grind it out much more. Um, I think that's something that tennis needs to actually change. I think there should be the slow courts, but there should also, there should also be the faster surfaces where a player who, who likes to serve and volley can actually do so and still win. Because right now there's almost no serve and volleyers on the tour, right? So I think that kind of thing in tennis needs to change. Like we had the Agassi versus Sampras matchups, and that was so successful because you had that contrast in styles. You had the player in Agassi who liked to hit great returns and the passing shots. And then you had a player like Sampras who served and volleyed to the highest level uh, in tennis, right? So you had those huge contrasts. And I think that's something that the game's missing right now. I'd love to see a player who comes on tour, chips and charges, comes to the net, serve and volleys, plays a different style of, of, of the game. Tennis is the best when the contrasts of styles kind of clash and it's it exactly. comes like who can get their game, you know, impose their game on the other guy, right? That's that's the most interesting part. And when players are two, like, I mean, two two-dimensional players, like hitting from the baseline, they're both like close to two meters, they both hit bomb serves, and they have no weaknesses with, with the ground strokes, because you can't have weaknesses, it seems like, today. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not the most exciting product to sell to the audience, you know? Like, it, it's not... It's more fun to see, like, Fabrice Santoro try to 
to like find a way through a hard hit player or someone who hits with massive spin. You know, you see that different contrast. Exactly. Do you think like we need to change some rules or change some some equipment requirements maybe to kind of get bit back to that? Or uh, do you think I it's think just going to th- keep going because it's getting faster and faster and faster every year? Yeah. I mean, I think if you go to, you know, all the, all the things about stringing the rackets, like I, I've never been someone who's studied that. Um, so I couldn't talk about that in huge, uh, in huge depth, but I know that the, the balls are more fluffier. I know that the grass is now much, they've changed the type of grass you use at Wimbledon and they've changed the length of the grass. Uh, even at the US Open, they're putting more acrylic on the courts to slow it down at the Aussie Open. So all of this kind of helps the player who likes to stay on the baseline. So someone like a Nadal or a Djokovic, that was kind of perfect for them, right? It was at the same time that those two players kind of made the, the leap to number one and number two in the world. Then you had a player like Federer who plays a more all-court game and he suffered because the court slowed down, the ball slowed down. But indoors, he was still killing everybody because the courts were still quite quick. So I think it comes back to the play. The fans actually have to request it. The fans have to say, look, we want to see a contrast of styles. We don't just want to see baseline rallies all day long. We want to see someone who's some bodies. So mix it up. Like you don't have to have out of 40 events a year, the, all the surfaces to play exactly the same. Like playing on grass now is like almost like playing on a hard court. Grass should be special because it's quicker bouncing, a slice is more effective, a serve and volley is a better uh, tactic than staying on the baseline and grinding away. So I think it comes down to the, the authorities to actually say, let's make these differences with the balls, with the surfaces, and actually uh, inspire and help players who like to play a different game style. Because you, you're always going to have the grinders on clay. And you know that if you go and watch a play, uh, player on clay, the, 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 the rallies are going to be much longer and the points are going to be more physical. But you should then have that option of, I want to go to Wimbledon and see players who serve volley. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And what, what kind of style do you uh, bring to the court? What's your, uh, like, you're an aggressive player, right? I like to play aggressive. I like to play all court. I like to come to the net. I like to take the, the return on, on the rise, come to the net. I like to play kind of... Sampras was my hero growing up, but Agassi was also my hero. So Agassi and Sampras, I kind of tried to take the best from both of them and try to put that into my own game. Um, so I like to take the ball on the rise. I like to come to the net. I like to sum volley every now and then to throw off the opponent. So, yeah, I like players who play like me. Like Alcaraz does it a bit. He likes to come forward a lot more than most Spaniards. Uh, and I think that's from Juan Carlos. I think he's kind of installed that into him, like get to the net, finish the point. So I'd like to watch him. He's the most exciting player for me right now. Yeah, and I, for most. And also he brings a smile. So I think the personality exactly. kind of wins over many people, like because it's an entertainment sport. Exactly. After all, right? So that, that's important. You recently told me like you moved to, um, to Turkey, made a big step. You're moving to Turkey from the UK. How, how has that been? Like, how has that move been for you and your family? Yeah, it's been a big change. Um, the main reason we came was for the sun, for the weather. The UK weather being so bad most of the year. Uh, it's kind of like, if you're in the UK, you know you're going to be indoors nine months out of the year. And my my dream, my goal has always been like, where can I build a little base, even if it's two or three courts? And at the time, the land was quite cheap in Turkey. So I had a lot of places like scouted out that I thought, this could be a, a top tennis training academy. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but it's something that I'm still working on. So that's kind of one of the main reasons I moved. And also just the more outdoor kind of lifestyle. My kids can go to the beach every day. We can play outside in the sun. It's just a healthier kind of lifestyle than being indoors all day. Yeah. And how is their, their tennis life? Like it's, it's, there's quite a popular sport around where you are, right? With a lot of futures. Yeah, there's, there's like 45 futures a year here in Antalya region. Um, but it's a funny one because you have so many foreigners. It's, it's mainly foreigners playing, right? There's not that many Turkish players who are actually competing week in, week out. Uh, I think the sport culture here is, is like most of Europe. It's all based around football. So football is the biggest sport by miles. And then basketball is quite big. Tennis is, I think, maybe six or seven on the list, right? So it's a, 
it's not like being in Spain. In Spain, everyone plays tennis. It's like every every two or three streets, there's a couple of courts. So the culture is very, very different. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. I can imagine that like, it depends a lot of what's in the culture. And, and here it's tennis and paddle and, and maybe a little bit of golf uh, generally, right? And yes. what do you see for your kids? Do you think they will become tennis players? Is that something you'd want for them? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't see that. My son, he plays. My daughter, she plays a bit as well. But it's such a brutal sport. And I've been through it myself. And I know what it takes to actually just reach the lower levels of professional tennis, never mind the higher levels. So I think if you're going to really do it, you have to commit to it. And it's something that the whole family has to commit to. It wouldn't just be the child, you know, it's like the mum and dad has to commit to taking them to events every weekend, to paying all this money to coaches. Um, the families suffer. I see a lot of tennis families breaking down because their kids are trying to go pro. And I don't really want that in my own family. So if my son said to me tomorrow, I want to be a pro, I'd help him as much as I could, but it's not something that I would encourage. There's a lot. There's a lot more easy ways to uh, to be successful in life than tennis. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I, Ian said the same thing the other day. It's like, you know, he 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 was very strong on like one way to break your relationship with your kid is to have them play professional tennis. Like that yeah. that parent tennis relationship is very very difficult to manage. It's insane. It's uh, I had that with my dad. So growing up, I didn't really like tennis. And my dad was pushing me to play. Uh, he got me into tennis when I was four years old and I played until nine. And by nine, I was like one of the best juniors in, in the States. I played there for a bit. And then I stopped for five years because I, I hated it. I actually hated how much he was pushing me. And then when I started again at 14, I, I started liking it and then I fell in love with it. But it was because I was pushing myself. It wasn't like he was telling me, let's go to practice. I was telling him, Tomorrow, we'll wake up at 6, we get to the course at 6.30 before I go to school. So I think if, if it comes from the child and they want, they're, they're self-motivated, they want to actually improve, they want to play, then it can be a good thing. But if it's coming from the parents being pushy, best way to, to divorce your, your spouse and break up the family, in my experience. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I've seen so many kids, I've even hit with kids who are like high-ranked in Europe that, that they hate tennis and they're 15 <laughs> years old. Yeah. And like, why do you play tennis? Uh, because my, my parents, you know, and, uh, yeah. and that's going to create a lot of resentment. Like, how's your relationship with your father then? It's like, is it strained because yeah, so of that? Or is it like, yeah, no, it's fine now. Now it's fine. Like when I restarted at 14, it was because I wanted to. Um, and he kind of, I think he, he learned his lesson up until the age of nine. He was pushing me so hard. And I think he kind of reflected back and said, why did I do that? Like, he could have still been a very good player without me being so pushy. So I think by the time I restarted at 14, he, he was much more relaxed. He was much more laid back. Uh, and then we had a great relationship. So now we're, we're like, we're, we're, we're good. But when I was a kid, up until nine, I really didn't like tennis. And I, my dad was the reason why I was playing. And because of that, I slightly hated him, you know, because he was pushing me to wake up at half five to go to the courts at six o'clock before school. And you're like, I just want to sleep. It's intense. Yeah, it's intense. And I think for many players, they can relate to that. Like it's because tennis, you need so much quantity training. And uh, and like a, a parent that pushes you can really hurt your, your self-motivation, as you said. I think you put it very nicely there. Uh, changing the, the tack a little bit, like when you yes. work with players, like of, on, like recreational players, probably a lot of them listening to this one, um, what like are you seeing over and over again? Like, is there any patterns you're seeing that you think, you know, we could change or could be better communicated or, or what, like, what's the biggest problem you think for, for most intermediate tennis players? I think number one thing is players have an idea of how they play in their heads. Like, I think I play like Roger Federer, but I watch myself and I see I play nothing like him. But for, for most players, they have a vision of how they play. And only when you show them back when you see on camera, actually, this is how you play. Like, you think you're doing this on your serve? Let's watch it. And I showed him, this is the slow motion of your serve. Then they understand what they're actually doing. So I think the best way for players to learn is through recording themselves and watching it back, analyzing it, looking at, comparing it to the pros. 
and looking at the fundamentals. Like every every stroke has the fundamentals. So Nadal's serve is very different to Djokovic's, which is very different to Federer's, which is different to Sampras's. But they all share the same fundamentals. And if you master those fundamentals, that's when I think players can then improve the quickest. So, for example, on the serve, we know we need the right grip. We need the continental grip. We know that we need a good ball toss. We know that we need to try to use our legs to drive up. We know we need to be balanced. We need to keep the left hand up. All of these things are fundamentals that anybody can master. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your level. You can master those. And I think two of the things that are so often overlooked by club players is number one, how well do you actually track the ball? Uh, and I work with players who take, the, take their eyes off the ball routinely. So there's a lot of drills that I do just for tracking the ball and, um, and also recognizing what type of ball is coming at you. So is it deep? Is it short? Is it coming to my forehand? Is it coming to my backhand? What kind of spin is it? Is it coming with top spin? Is it flat? Is it underspin? All of these skills, that's, that's going to help you get in the right position. And also breathing, exhaling through the point of contact and making sure that you're loose with the racket. All of that can be worked by anybody. It doesn't matter your level. So all of these things are fundamentals that I always try to teach in my videos and, and all my students are constantly working on. Yeah, that's great. I think that's that's 100% right. Like the, we have to, you have to always start with the fundamentals and then you will enjoy tennis more because I think tennis sometimes suffers uh, although it's a beautiful thing that it's such a difficult game to learn there's beauty in that that's why i love it but some players like they they give up or they want to go to paddle for example in europe or pickleball in in us especially uh, because it's such a difficult sport you know do you, do you but many people are obviously like lifers they are really obsessed with tennis they want to keep learning do the students that kind of travel like do you you do you still do like uh, sessions like you did in Malta where you have people coming, yes. traveling to work with you in person? Does that still yes. happen? Yeah, so 2019, I think Malta was our last one until last year. So we had three years off just because it was so tough to actually book a venue. During 2020, we had so many ev events booked in and we had to cancel everything. The venues lose money. It was just a nightmare. So we didn't do anything until last year. And then last year we had one in Spain and a bunch of the people who were in Malta with us, they came back to Spain because they said, look, we loved Malta so much. Uh, we loved your coaching. We wanted more help from you in person.